Well, it's good to be with you this morning in this last message of 2023. You can turn to Acts chapter 2. Eventually, I'll get there. Uh, I believe this will probably be the last topical message I do. Uh, Lord willing, I'll jump back into Luke, where I was uh, during the summer before uh, my wife passed away, uh, and, and began working through there. As kind of indicated in the message, and, and I, I wish I could just sit down with every one of you and just talk about what the Lord's done in my heart in the last few weeks, but it's just been an amazing thing. Um, yeah, I don't want to get on that subject right now, but it's just, uh, I feel like uh, there's been a revival in my heart, and uh, there's a lot of very deep, dark days ahead. I know that. But for the first time in four months, um, there's a, just a twilight glimmer of hope and joy. And so it's, it's been good. And I'm actually, for the first time in over a year, excited to stand in the pulpit. So, um, Well, tomorrow's the start of a new year, 2024. I remember being a teenager back in 19... 82, 83, thinking to myself that those kind of years just seem so distant. And hopefully I don't live as old as those people that live that long, right? <laughs> but with the turn of a calendar year comes the natural tendency, and it's also the perfect time to evaluate and make changes, isn't it? I think most normal people look back and reflect and then look forward. Many of you uh, probably make New Year's resolutions. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Actually, don't tell me, I already know. Um, statistics are that 45% of you make New Year's resolutions. So you wanna know what the top five are? Here's the top five. Improve fitness, is that any wonder? Improve finances. Improve mental health. Lose weight. How many are there? Improve diet. I mean, those are all no-brainers, right? That's what everybody does every year. Um, but I, I want to give you a little dose of reality. You ready? 75% only make it through the first week. 24% say they always fail their New Year's resolutions. Only 8% succeed in their New Year's resolutions. I'm here to give you a good dose of reality as we start that new year. But when we start talking about uh, New Year's resolutions and thinking our way through it, the question is, as a believer, how do we evaluate our priorities? Of all the activities and goals and priorities that we have or can have, what is the most important priority that we have for the limited time that we have on earth? Fitness is a good goal. I'm working hard on that one myself. Finances are a good goal. I mean, we all need to eat, right? Maybe a little less, but we all need to eat. Mental health is a good goal. But is there a priority which can be our focus that results in a greater and or results in greater and long-lasting, longer-lasting rewards? Of course, we all know the answer to that. The answer is yes. And so we know that the greatest goal on earth 
is to know God and to reflect His image and glorify Him. And if we do that, that is the most rewarding, most satisfying, most joy-giving, most fulfilling pursuit that we can embark. That is what fills the deepest hunger in our soul. In fact, that's why we're made, isn't it? To know the living God. He he made us, and then He reveals Himself to us in nature and in, in His Word. And I do evaluate, and sometimes I do make resolutions, but it seems that some resolutions show up on my list every year and I never master them. The rate of failure can be crushing, can it? I mean, for many of us, it feels like our spiritual lives run the same course. Sometimes it feels like two steps forward, three steps back. But regardless of how little progress we seem to make, listen, regardless of how little the progress is, Christ is worth the effort. Isn't He? He's worth the discipline. He's worth the determination. I don't know about you, but at times it seems like my shortcomings are set clearly before me. It's just crushing. You ever been there? And I find myself lamenting with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's recounting the struggles of sin in his own stubborn flesh. He desires to do what's right, and he fails again. This is the Apostle Paul. So he finally he just throws his hands up in despair, doesn't he? Who will deliver me from this body of death? I've often felt tempted to do the same thing. I just want to give up. I don't know why I keep trying. You there? But then in the next verse, Paul says something very surprising. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Do you see what he does? Right in the middle of lamenting his sin and then going back and saying, I keep on sinning, right in the middle of that, he gives a doxology. Thanks be to God. Because to ask the question is to answer it. Who shall deliver me from this body of death answers the question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. God through Jesus Christ has already delivered us. While we're still in the flesh, the flesh wars in our hearts, made new, but Christ, in Christ, we've already been delivered. When He comes back in blazing glory, not only to deliver us from this world, but our delivery from the body of sin, it will be made complete. I cannot wait for that moment. I was talking to uh, my friend Mike just this weekend. We were talking about the Lord coming back. And I said, sometimes it makes me feel bad that I'm more excited about getting rid of sin than anything else. The Lord, through His sacrificial death on the cross and His overcoming death, has all worked to secure our justification. And get this, we are no longer condemned. But that's not even the end. When you continue in Romans, you come to verse number, or chapter number 8, where Paul discusses life in the Spirit. 
is characterized by, by freedom and peace and righteousness. He laments the state of creation. He, he, all creation groans in anticipation of final deliverance. And he praises the Spirit for interceding on our behalf and working in us. And then he says this, um, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And he finishes the chapter with Romans 8.28, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. Isn't that wonderful? And so Christ, those whom Christ delivers, he also remakes through his Spirit. And this is good news for us. As we live lives dependent upon the Spirit of God, as we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the Lord is shaping us into the image of His Son. And amid one more year of failures, one more year of broken resolutions, may we remember that God makes all things new, including us. Now, here's a question. That's great and all. How? How does he do that? How does God change us? Does he just wave a magic wand? Does he sprinkle pixie dust on us? Is it just let go and let God? Do we have a sudden experience, spiritual experience and all of a sudden, we're now a second class of Christian, the, the greater class of Christian. Well, these means are described in the New Testament in Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 42. And here we find four ingredients to Christian growth. And the attitude behind it. Talking about the first church. This is chapter 2, right after Pentecost, right? And this is what it says about the church. And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There it is. Very simple what that church did. I want you to notice how they practice these things. Do you see what it says about how they practice it? Can you see it in there? Luke says that they devoted themselves to it devoted themselves now that word devoted you could you could define as they occupied themselves diligently with these four things it, it indicates an intensity i mentioned this before i always hate the month of january in the gym because it's full of all the people i know i won't see the rest of the year you with me I walk in there and machines are all taken like, dude, I won't even see you in two weeks. Just quit now and get out of my way. <laughs> I have a really bad attitude in case you didn't pick up on that. But there are some people in the gym, the intensity by which they work out is completely different than other people. You've seen it, right? It's, it's the same thing when you're watching sports. The intensity by which some people play, um, I, I, you can argue with me, but it's an inarguable truth. Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player ever. 
what's wrong with you people? Don't you agree with me? <laughs> but if you watch any documentaries, his intensity, he never turned that intensity off. That's one of the things that made him great. And the early church occupied themselves diligently with these four things. They weren't paying lip service to these activities. These, these activities were priorities. There was intention. There was purpose. There was desire. There was an intensity that matched God's desire and intensity. Let me ask you a question. Does your practice of these activities match the Lord's desire for you in these activities? The, the activities that are listed in Acts 2.42, these are not goals in themselves. The activities are practiced for a goal. They're practiced for a goal. The goal is to become like Jesus Christ. Let's look at them very quickly. First thing the verse says is the apostles' doctrine. It's the teaching of Scripture. Specifically, the, the new church listened to the teaching of the apostles. And guess what we do every Sunday morning? We listen to the teaching of the apostles, don't we? No doubt they were reading Scripture. They were interpreting it and applying it for the people. But they were also teaching about Jesus Christ. What is death and resurrection meant for believers? You must devote yourself to the teaching of Scripture if you expect to grow in Jesus Christ. You need to soak in Scripture. Be intentional about getting to church and hearing the preaching of the Word. Make time in your schedule for more than just a cursory reading of a verse or a simple little devotion. Listen to Scripture on your commute. Listen to sermons on your commute. It is important that we do these things. But as important as these are, there we go, it was important as these things are, the most effective means by which Scripture is given is through corporate worship. Sunday morning. We were saved to worship the Lord corporately. When you look at Revelation 4 and 5, the church perfected, right? It doesn't say, and they're all sitting in their mansions with a cup of coffee reading Scripture. It doesn't say they went out in the field by themselves and prayed. Every single scene is throngs of people worshiping the Lord. Matter of fact, we are worshiping with them right now. They're worshiping the Lord and we're entered into corporate worship just like them. We were saved to worship the Lord corporately. There seems to be a special working in the hearts of believers through God's Holy Spirit when believers get together and they worship corporately. All through Scripture, corporate worship becomes pivotal event in the life of the community. From Exodus, the meetings at Sinai, to the covenant in Deuteronomy, to when they conquered the, the promised land, to the revivals um, under Josiah, the dedication of the temple with Solomon, the important feast gatherings in Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and I could go on and on and on, corporate worship resulted in dramatic change. When Christians gather together in spirit and truth to hear the word, sing 
praise, confess the faith, witness baptisms, receive communion, and warmly greet one another in Christ, they actively and mysteriously foster Christian unity and they stir one another up towards godly living. Simon Kistemacher, he's a commentator, um, notes that that one of the first indications of a lack of love toward God and neighbor is for a Christian to stay away from worship services. Such a Christian forsakes the communal obligations of attending these meetings and displays the symptoms of selfishness and self-centeredness, and that's true. In fact, Hebrews 10 teaches us a wonderful truth. If you, if you remember Hebrews 10, it's, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is teaching that because of Christ, the veil has been rent. We no longer need to go through a, a, a um, high priest who's... A, um, I messed that all up. Let me start over. We, we, we have a different mediator. And that new mediator is Jesus Christ, and we can go straight to the Holy of Holies. There's no veil. And he says we can have confidence to approach that God without fear. Do you remember in the Old Testament, if anyone went into the Holy of Holies unworthily, what happened to them? Instant death. Not us. Matter of fact, when we go to the Holy of Holies, there's instant life. There's more life when we go to Christ. And the author directly connects this amazing access we have with God to corporate worship, and he says this. He says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see that? When we gather together in corporate worship, it's not only to hear the word preached, it's to stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's, it's the embers in a fire. You set them by themselves, they go out very quickly. You put them together, they keep one another burning. And that's what we need. And so in 2024, make a commitment to worship um, corporately. Make that a priority. But secondly, we see the fellowship. Isn't that an odd term? The fellowship. They dedicated themselves to the fellowship. Devoted themselves. This This is a sharing of common Christian life. The word is koinonia. In New Testament times, the word fellowship meant that you just had a bunch of stuff in common with each other and you just shared the common bonds with each other. As I said before, when I see my friend in in Memphis, we talked about Christ. I had so many wonderful times talking about Jesus Christ and Scripture and stuff because that's what we have in common. My bond with Him is closer than any fleshly family member I have that's not a believer. Believers, let's think about this word fellowship. Believers are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the fellowship we're called into. We have something in common with Jesus Christ. We're His brothers. He's our bridegroom. He's our Savior. And we enter into the fellowship. And that fellowship is the same kind of fellowship that the Holy Spirit has with the Son and the Son has with the Father. And the Holy Spirit has with the Father. Same fellowship. Isn't that amazing? That He allows sinners like you and me stops and starts. You know how we are? God, I love you so much, I just want to keep my eyes on Jesus. Look, a squirrel. That's the way we are, isn't it? 
And we're in that kind of fellowship. Similarly, the, uh, the apostolic benediction highlights the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. We entered into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And Paul can speak of the fellowship between himself and the Philippians in gospel life. The word partnership is that word koinonia. I, I, I had to do a, a study of that word when I was working on my doctoral dissertation for my um, um, the theology part. Amazing word. What fellowship means and, and, and the implications of it. Fellowship thus signals our common participation in Christ and, listen, the sense of unity that that entails. You're in Acts 2 already. Look at verses 44 and 45. Luke 2 provides us with an astounding picture of what this Christ-centered, unified sharing looked like for the early church. 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You see that word common? They had all things in common. That is from the same word group as fellowship. Same thing. What the first Christians shared together by faith in Jesus Christ led them to share with each other in their um, material possessions. Astounding, isn't it? The early church members felt a sense of responsibility towards one another. Do you feel responsibility? towards the people in your fellowship, in your assembly. Later, this commitment would manifest itself in sharing food with, with the widows who were in need. These practical expressions of care for each other arose out of the common sense of identity. What are they consistently called through the New Testament? Brothers. Or brothers and sisters. That's how close we are. We're members of the same family. Uh, there were a powerful witness to the people of Jerusalem of what trusting Christ meant. These believers clearly felt a sense of responsibility to one another. They were meeting together outside the, on the Lord's Day gatherings. True fellowship involves sharing uh, what God is doing in your life, sharing your possessions and your time with one another. Did you hear that? Time. Sharing your time with one another. There's no room for rugged individualism in the church. There's no room for this Western ideal of the independent, self-made person. There's no room for selfishness in the early church. And so the fellowship, our fellowship, is what we have in common with Jesus Christ. I've mentioned this before, I'll say it again. When, when Heather died, the, 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 the note I sent out to you, remember what it was? I invited everyone over. They usually back off so the, the family can be together. I said, you are my family. Why would I shut you out of that time? That's how close we are. And so we devote ourselves to corporate worship, the teaching of Scripture. We devote ourselves to the fellowship. We also um, devote ourselves to the breaking of bread. You know what they did? They ate together. Now, some people will say, well, this is talking about um, communion. It's not. That's Acts 2.42. Look at Acts 2.46. What does it say? And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, what did they do? 
They receive their food. Does anybody get full from those little packets that we get on Sunday mornings? If you do, you need to go see the doctor. They were eating together in each other's homes. And they did it with a glad and generous heart. Luke is drawing attention to something important. The potluck supper, if you want to use that term. Eating together. It was an important part of church life. The first Christians needed time to discuss, to talk, and to learn from one another. And as they did so, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Fellowship around food was important in the early church. And it should be viewed no less important in this time. You know, some churches have the Wednesday night supper. One of my churches used to have that. The Wednesday night supper, common practice. Some have a Sunday evening meal. Whatever it is, whatever individual churches decide, best for them in their circumstances, the fact of the matter is, a practical aspect of ministry is involved with food. You ever thought of that? I like food, by the way. And when you eat a meal together, what do you what do you do? You sit there and not talk to each other? No, the meal lasts an hour, two hours. Because you're talking, having conversation, bonding in relationship, fostering a sense that we are one family because we really are, aren't we? There was intimate interaction with one another. Mutual acceptance of community life together. No doubt, getting together to eat fostered spiritual conversations with one another, don't you think? Because the purpose of eating together is not merely filling your stomach, but to share life together and to build one another up. This week, I I got to sit down and and, uh, have breakfast with some men. And in the course of conversation, I felt my heart warmed as we talked about the Lord, as, as we discussed spiritual things, as we posed questions about different verses and things. It was a wonderful time. I love those kind of conversations. I love eating together and having that kind of a thing. In the West, we tend to emphasize our blood family over any other tie. And family is very important. But listen, the church family is the closest family you will ever have. Therefore, spending time together over meals bonds and strengthens that family. So in the new year, one way to help your spiritual growth is by eating meals together. One way to help your spiritual growth is to um, get together the fellowship, do things together, ministry-wise. And one way to grow yourself in um, the new year is to come to corporate worship. And finally, to get to know God, it says the prayers. You know what this is? The prayers generally refers to set times of prayer that the Jewish people had. Because this church is Jewish right now. It hasn't expanded to the Gentiles yet. It's a Jewish church. But they prayed corporately when they did those prayers. Prayer is something that's emphasized in that. 
Luke, Acts. You know, he wrote both of them, right? You can read them. You ought to sometime. Read Luke and skip John and go to Acts. Because it's all one book. Luke, Acts. The emphasis in there, one of the emphases is prayer. All through both of those books, prayer. Great things happened when people got together to pray. One of the special features of that is Jesus' prayer ministry. Jesus prayed before every large ministry event. Every single one you find him in prayer in his earthly ministry. A community at prayer seeks God's direction and is dependent upon God because God's family of people do not work by feelings. We don't work by intuition, but by actively submitting ourselves to God's direction. And the near constant emphasis in the New Testament is that the church is a praying church. Corporate prayer. I pulled this uh, Irenaeus, Irenaeus, however you want to say him, uh, from the 2nd century. Um, He wrote this about the church. Listen to what he said. The church does not perform anything by means of angelic intervention or by invocations or by any other wicked or curious act, listen, but by directing her prayers to the Lord, who has made all things in a pure and sincere and straightforward spirit. Calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, she has been accustomed to work miracles for the advantage of mankind. Corporate prayer. In a time when prayer meetings have become something for a select few, the importance of collective, gathered prayer times cannot be overemphasized. It's gotten awful quiet in here, to be honest with you. Hardly anything is more important sign of a church's vitality than its commitment to prayer. As a pastor, I'm going to get serious for just a minute. As a pastor, the most concerning sign of spiritual malaise I see is the fact that our corporate prayer times are so sparsely attended. We pray on Wednesday nights, 6.30. There's one at 8.30 on Sunday mornings. I like to start another one. I would love for some people from the first service to say, you know what, let's get together afterwards and we'll pray for the second service. That way we have two times of prayer on Sunday morning and time on Wednesday to pray together. Prayer is so important. Corporate prayer. There's so many things that the church needs prayer for. So many things that the church can do through the power of prayer. And only through the power of prayer. God works through prayer. That's the means that God has ordained. It takes prayer. Individual prayer and corporate prayer. Well, let me Let me close. I encourage you to make 2024 the year that you pursue God more than any other year. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said the following. You ready? What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance, and this the Christian has in a way no other person has. And here's his question 
Rhetorical question, for what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Amen and amen. Getting fit, getting your finances in good order, having great mental health, and all that sort of stuff. Those are good goals. But the one that gives you meaning, the one that gives you purpose, is to know God in all His glory. Listen to what God said in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. By the way, isn't that that survey? That's the survey. What does he go on to say? But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. And here's how he concludes. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Look at that last phrase one more time. For in these things I delight. Did you catch that? Do you want to delight God? Then seek to understand and to know Him. Those are the things that God delights. Lord, I pray that we will seek the things in which You delight. In His name, Amen.